Listener Production. Hi, I'm Sasha Barbagat. Welcome to this extra episode of The Briefing. Did you know nearly 40% of federally registered lobbyists are former government representatives? That means they could have previously worked as advisors, senior public servants and even members of parliament. And there's a few names you might recognise too. Former Defence Minister Christopher Pine, former Foreign Affairs Minister Julie Bishop and former Queensland Premier Rob Borbidge are all now lobbyists. Listener journalist Alastair Kirkby has been looking into the issue and he's here with me now to explain exactly what lobbying is. Thanks for joining me, Alastair. First off, what is it? Broadly speaking, lobbying is when an individual or organisation tries to influence a government decision to get a certain outcome. Now, it's completely legal and accepted as part of our political system, and it happens at all levels of government. Mm. Are they all the same, all created equal lobbyists? So there are some lobbyists that work for in-house in for corporations, and then you have people who work for interest groups such as trade unions, environmental groups, or professional bodies. There's also this other type called a third-party lobbyist. Eamon Fitzpatrick owns a third-party lobbying firm and was former press sec to Prime Ministers Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd. So as you'd imagine, he's quite well-connected in Canberra. Mm. This is how he defines what he does. I am one of hundreds and hundreds of lobbyists, third-party lobbyists, who run businesses across Australia representing clients to government at federal and state level. So a company might come to me because they want to make sure that government understands a concern they might have or an idea they might have to make something better or to make sure that they or their industry fully understands what the impact of a government decision could be on them. I think the impression is that it's mainly big businesses who employ the use of lobbyists. Is that the case? Not at all. Organisations of all sizes and with a variety of causes use their services. So as you'd imagine, companies like Pfizer, Woodside and British American Tobacco, they use lobbyists. But organisations like the Worldwide Fund for Nature, the Cancer Council and Headspace also engage them. So there's a range of organisations that use these lobbyists to navigate their way through government. But here's the thing, and you mentioned it at the start, nearly 40% at a federal level used to work in government. I spoke with Professor Darren Halpin, who is a political scientist at ANU, and he studies organised interests and political representation. The big concern there is really that people are leveraging the expertise and the insights and networks that they gain in those public roles for for private benefit. And I think that the issue there is really one of cooling off periods. What is a reasonable period for people to sit on the bench, so to speak, before they are able then to take out some of those roles? I mean, the work we've done shows that actually they are a small subset of at least the federal lobbying scene or advocacy scene, um, but it's certainly something that needs to be to be addressed. And I mean, there are rules at the federal level already, but they do only pertain to a subset of, of elected officials mostly. Okay, that all makes sense. But is there a way we can put that so it's a little bit easier to understand? So our lobbyist, Eamon, that I spoke to says it's kind of like a company using an accountant who understands tax policy. Working in government, you learn an awful lot about our process of democracy, our process, our political process, and our process of governing and government. And that is actually far more complex than most people realise. You have budget pressures, you have political pressures, you have policy commitments, you then have understanding how the machinery of government works, who's responsible for what, which minister runs which piece of legislation that impacts someone and which department and has, has carriage of it. So you can imagine it's a, it's a pretty full-time job keeping up with all of that. 
Mm. The thing I find interesting with lobby groups is how much power they can actually exercise over what decisions are being made in Parliament, in Canberra or at the state level. Are there any rules or regulations around lobbying to kind of protect the interests of Australians? So there's a register in every state and federally of lobbyists and codes of conduct. What about restrictions on members of parliament becoming lobbyists? Because that one I find quite interesting and a little bit dicey. There's also a period of time some government workers must sit out before becoming a lobbyist. So, for example, a defence minister couldn't retire one day and then the next day walk in and start lobbying on behalf of the defence industry. They'd have to wait 18 months. But, and here's the big but, that only applies to matters relating to their official dealings in office. So in theory then, they could lobby government straight away on another issue. Exactly, and use those relationships they develop while in office. Eamon reckons it's one of the most regulated professional industries in Australia. We have to be totally transparent, as we should. So my clients all go on a register. If I'm working for a company that is owned in any way by a foreign government, that goes on a separate register. Everything is scrutinised. Governments are very, very uh, used to this. So often ministers will also release their diaries, particularly in some states. So states vary in terms of the level of transparency, but they are all transparent. So it's a combination of things. But the onus is on the third party lobbyists to declare. Yeah, so I guess that puts people's minds at ease a little bit, but surely there's ways that they can kind of circumvent that system. Yeah, the Attorney General's department's oversight role of lobbyists is largely administrative. It can't actually find lobbyists who do the wrong thing. Mm. And one of the main criticisms of the register is that it only applies to third-party lobbyists. Here's the professor again. It doesn't include lobbyists that are on the payroll permanently of corporations or any of the interest groups I've, I've been talking about. So basically the largest proportion of the advocacy or lobbying community at the federal level are not in the lobbying register. And I think that's one of the issues that people have been bringing up time and time again. Mm, are there any recent cases of this in-house lobbying? Do you remember the decision by the federal government to not allow Qatar Airways to have more flights into Australia? Of course. Well, Eamon used that as an example of the power these in-house lobbyists have. There were questions around their internal government relations and lobbying capacity. I think Qantas is an interesting case study in that because you start to see how a company of that size has all sorts of tools or levers or seem to have all sorts of tools and levers, but also has a pretty sizable in-house capacity. And the questions get asked around that. And as Qantas doesn't make use of third-party lobbyists, it doesn't feature on the register. Mm. Are there any suggestions on how we can make the system work better? Well, the professor thinks it could be improved with even more transparency. I think we need to have a better sense of who it is that's playing in the game when it comes to transparency, knowing who they're talking about and, and what are they talking about. And I think that would probably ease a lot of, well, it might not ease everyone's concerns, but at least there would the transparency itself would mean that there's less a sense that people are trying to obscure or hide those relationships. But I think having those sort of ministerial meetings public and transparency about who's meeting who on what and who's hiring who, I think would would go a fair way. And interestingly, Eamon agrees. Greater transparency is always good. People who understand the genuine need for this service also understand the need to be transparent at all times. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good thing and the more of it, the better. The other thing I will say is transparency is good because it weeds out shysters who do every now and then get into the industry and represent themselves as being able to do something or, you know, where they don't really do that. I mean, you, you get found out pretty quick 
when there is a level of transparency as we have now. Mm, I think, you know, like I said earlier, people don't quite realise how much power lobby groups have. And I think, you know, hearing all of this has made me feel a little bit better actually about the level of oversight that goes into protecting our interests as as people who vote for our politicians and want them to do the right thing. But yeah, it, it sounds like there's no doubt that maybe there's a bit more that we could do to just make sure that, you know, nothing untoward's going on. I definitely agree with that. And I think transparency and more transparency is always a good thing. The, the lobbying industry has ballooned over the past three decades and regulation is still largely administrative in nature and basically toothless. So mm. I think there could be a little bit more that can be done. Okay. Thanks for joining us today, Alistair. And that is it for today's extra episode of The Briefing. Tom and the team will be back in your feed from 6am tomorrow. Tomorrow.